Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm your hostess, Lori Adams-Brown, and you are listening to episode nine. I want to tell you about Anchor because it's what I use to record these podcasts. Why do I use it? Number one, it's free. Number two, it's simple. I don't have a lot of tech skills, but I don't need to because Anchor does a lot of the work for you. And as you know, many of you who know, I'm a career woman. I do this as a hobby on the side in my free time, and I love my kids and my family, and I don't want it to take more time than it needs to. (laughs) So thank you, Anchor, for that. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And so they also distribute it for you anywhere you hear podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the different ones. You can make money from it if you choose to with no minimum listenership, and it's got everything you need to make the podcast in one place. So I would encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. My guest on today's show is Christopher Kennison. Chris is an immigration lawyer in the United States working in the state of Louisiana. He, uh, however, was born in Thailand to U.S. citizens, um, and he lived near in this part of Thailand that's near the Cambodian border. And so even as a child, he just regularly saw refugees who were being housed behind these barbed wire fences as a result of the civil war that was going on at the time in Cambodia. So just early memories around that, which really formed his passion. Um, but he basically, he um, grew up in Thailand, uh, lived in um, Bangkok for a while, and then he basically went to high school in a boarding school in Penang, Malaysia, and then came to university in the United States, studied at Auburn University, um, and then he moved to Cambodia and spent a couple years there teaching English at the Royal University in Phnom Penh, and he also got to work during that time at an IDP camp, and just every week during that that time in Cambodia, he just had these interactions with these internally displaced peoples, and he just began to really reignite this passion he had um, remembered from his early years, and just seeing people in these desperate situations and wanting to help them. So he finished those couple years in Cambodia, came to the U.S., and lived in the Bay Area where he got a master's in theological studies from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary in, in Mill Valley, California. And then right after that, he moved to Baton Rouge and went to law school, and he studied immigration law. And so basically, to this day, he has been working in immigration law and just a real advocate for immigrants. Um, You're going to get to hear just a deep dive today into what's going on in the United States around immigration law from an immigration lawyer himself. He'll talk about how in the state of Louisiana, there are just several places within the state that he gets the chance to travel across the state to meet with um, immigrant clients. Um, There's several detention centers throughout middle and northern Louisiana that he he's involved with. And then he, he also has served as an adjunct professor of immigration law at a local university there in Baton Rouge. Chris, um, he speaks Thai, he speaks Khmer from his time in Cambodia, a little bit of Spanish. He is just very much um, a third, third culture kid in every way. Um, and you're just gonna see how, along with so many TCKs or third culture kids, he's spending his life to make a difference in the lives of others, which is pretty typical of uh, those of us who've grown up in those experiences. So. It's my honor and my pleasure to introduce my friend, Chris Kennison, to you today. Welcome to the show, Chris. 
Hey, Lori, can you hear me? Hey, I can. Great Excellent. to hear your voice. Yes, you too. It's been a few years, huh? I know. It has been several years. I feel like I see your sister all the time, at least on Zoom these days. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I feel yeah. like it's probably been at least five or six since we've seen you guys. Probably longer than that. Maybe it even may 10. have been. Yeah. Oh. Thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. I think Absolutely. Be, yeah. I think you have a special... Um, role in this whole area of immigration. So I was really glad that you had the time to talk today about it. Uh, I just wanted to start off with um, you letting yourself give your own introduction, because um, I know you've been, you know, an advocate for immigrants in the U.S. and even globally. So, um, yeah, just describe kind of what your role is, who you are and what you do. So my name is Christopher Kennison. I am an immigration attorney. I live in central Louisiana. I've been uh, practicing law for 10 years, about well, really, for all 10 years, I've been doing immigration. Um, I focused in some other areas a lot of my first few years, but the last five or six, I've almost been doing exclusively immigration law. Um, so in central Louisiana, most people don't think of it as really like who lives there, what kind of immigrants live in central Louisiana. But um, <laughs> a lot of, uh, there are actually like around 10 different ICE detention centers that are located wow. within about two hours of me. Um, okay. So most people don't know ICE. Most of the detention centers aren't, in fact, near big cities like New York or Miami or Chicago. Most of the de detention centers they they operate are in extremely rural areas, and they're operated by private contractors or um, sheriff's offices. And it's just because mainly because it's so much cheaper to run a detention center in a rural area than it is a, in a more populated area. Yeah, um, makes sense. <laughs> A big challenge with that, though, comes in there's very little access to representation for these immigrants who are, you know, stuck in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah. So there aren't a whole lot of attorneys that do this work. Um, and so for me, I most of my work, I, I call my office, my car is my office, because I'm pretty much, <laughs> you know, driving most every week, like three to four days a week on the road. Um, and so it's a great, I live in Alexandria, and I'm only, you know, again, there's detention centers in Treeport, Monroe, you know, Natchez, Mississippi, um, you know, a bunch of smaller towns. And so that's pretty, that's most, mostly what I do. A large portion of my clients are asylum seekers. They've come okay. from all over the world, from Syria, from Eritrea, from, you know, Central America, um, you know, Cameroon, uh, all over the place, you know, Venezuela, um, all over the place, you know, seeking asylum in the U.S. And so a large part of what I do is um, representing them in their asylum case. Yeah, that's so great. And I, I just, I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective on, on a lot of these things because you're, you're certainly on the front lines getting to know immigrants and the whole process, with, especially with the asylum cases. Um, how would you describe, like in your own words, what's kind of going on, at least in the U.S., with immigration? <laughs> I think restrictive would be um, the word that comes to my mind. I think that the current administration, you know, it seems like every two or three months, some new rule comes out limiting or making it more difficult to enter the United States. Uh, you know, yeah. always a new set of rules that make it, especially when it comes to asylum seekers, you know, there, yeah. you know, we have, we have, our country is a, a signatory to a lot of international treaties. And on those treaties, we're required to, you know, give asylum seekers the right to change, to seek asylum to prove their case. Um, and all of them until the last several years 
the process has generally been they, they come to the United States, they seek asylum, they tell the customs and border patrol officers they want to request asylum. Then they're given that it's called a credible fear interview. If they pass their, the interview and they have a credible fear of returning to their country, then they will be uh, allowed to apply for asylum. But in the past, most of them were paroled, which would mean they would ultimately release them, allow to a U.S. sponsor and allow them to live in the U.S. But the ICE doesn't parole people anymore. And so what you see now is most of the people of seeking asylum are all detained. Um, and not only, so that's another, but like for another example is uh, um, the Migrant Protection Protocol, the MPP. Basically the, what the U.S. is doing now is forcing the migrants seeking asylum to stay in Mexico before, um, while their case is pending, and then they'll enter the U.S. for the sole purpose of having their 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 hearing, their final trial. I'm not personally involved in those cases because those are more um, Texas border cases, like El Paso. Uh, so more yeah. of the attorneys yeah. on the border of Texas and the in Mexico, are, um, they handle those cases. But those cases don't come to Louisiana. But that's just another example. Another rule that the administration issued that if you're an asylum seeker and you pass through a third country to come to the US, then you don't qualify for asylum. So the reality is <coughs> no asylum seekers, they're not gonna get a visa to the US. They're not gonna just be able to fly into the Dallas airport and request asylum. Yeah. You know, we won't, uh, they won't let them even board the plane if, unless they have a visa. And the US isn't issuing a wow. visa. So for example, someone that wants to come, so Cameroon is, is a kind of a hot topic these days because it's in, it's almost a civil war between the Anglophones and the Francophones. And so that's a good example. So someone from Cameroon that wants, you know, that's being, if they have an arrest warrant issued against them, they want to flee and come to the U.S., they're going to have to go through Central America before they can arri even arrive in the United States. Um, and those yeah. people, if they enter through Mexico, then the U.S. is going to say, I'm sorry, you entered through a third country. Uh, you're not eligible for asylum. Fortunately for that rule, it was struck down just about a month or two ago by a federal court. Um, but, you know, again, awesome. these are just things that, you know, every three or four months, things get tighter and tighter and tighter um, and, until most recently with the COVID, um, the U.S. Even, isn't even allowing asylum seekers in at all. There's a complete blockage. Um, and so there's no one, there's very few um, people left in the detention center. Um, there's still a few cases, but I mean, they, you know, what is the, the saying, don't let a good tragedy go um, uh, and that wasted. <laughs> I think the current administration has taken that to to its uh you know 100% capacity using COVID to try to you know as an excuse to like limit uh, people's entrance into the United States. Yeah, it's just heartbreaking because you know I mean I know just even for the Venezuelan asylum seekers, which I think is a pretty large number for what I understand, and having grown up there and have friends there and. A lot of um, my friends over the years during some really difficult times, kind of in the latter years of Hugo Chavez and then increasingly under Nicolas Maduro and his rule, um, have gone to other countries. I know the U.S. has been a big recipient, but other countries in South America have received them. But in cases where, you know, they did need to seek asylum in the U.S. if they're coming from Peru, for example, or if they've gone to Spain or somewhere else first, then they they wouldn't be eligible. Right. But I, I just feel like they add so much to our culture. Like, I mean... On the, on the good side is those who have gotten in have opened Venezuelan restaurants, which used to be really scarce when I was back in my getting my master's degree in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. But then now they're everywhere because the asylum seekers, when they come, they tend to bring their food and their culture with them and they open up delicious restaurants and then there becomes a community and they've definitely 
in my perspective, enriched our culture in the U.S., you know, quite a bit. So it, it is sad that we've um, kind of shut that part. Yeah, down. I mean, I think that that's a great point. I think that there's this uh, view of my, of immigrants that they are a burden to society, but I've never seen that. Um, so many immigrants are hardworking yeah. individuals. They want to make a life for themselves. They want to work hard and they want to um, contribute. Um, and it's the identity of our nation. Like we are a nation of immigrants um, and we still are despite yeah. the last three years. I believe that that's ultimately who are we are in our being and our identity. And so it's sad as someone who, you know, didn't live permanently in the U.S. until I was, you know, an adult, um, to see the backlash against immigrants that we've seen in the last, you know, several years. It's, it's tough to see that. It is tough to see that. So I would love for our audience just to hear more about the way that you grew up because, um, you know, I know that you grew up in Bangkok, and then you also went to high school, at least for part of it, in boarding school in Penang, Malaysia. And then you also lived as an adult for a period of time in Cambodia. So I'd just be interested about your own experience, you know, living on an immigrant visa in other countries for most of your life and, you know, how you were received in that regard and, and how that gives you a perspective on immigration. So, yeah, I was born um, in Thailand in 1978. Um, when I was a, a small child, I, we, I grew up on the eastern eastern side of Thailand near only within like an hour of Cambodia so I grew up you know seeing the the uh the you know the UNHCR camps for the people um fleeing Cambodia you know in the barbed wire fences and the, those blue tarp roofs so yeah. I have like very vivid memories as a child of like always seeing those people and you know there were obviously they, at that point they had escaped the Khmer Rouge and they were um you know, out of danger, but life was still really tough for him. So I had such vivid memories as a child seeing people in desperate circumstances. Um, and then I was always yeah. so extremely curious about Cambodia. Um, before that, you know, in high school, I went to boarding school in Malaysia, which is um, Penang, which is this amazing island, um, you know, yeah. south of Thailand. <laughs> and you've been there. Um, it's like a lot of people go there for tourism. Um, and my school was literally on the yeah. beach. And so you, I, I remember, <laughs> I, know, it's so great. I remember walking to class, and you could see porpoises like swimming like twenty feet offshore. It was, um, <laughs> it was an amazing life. Um, it's ridiculous. I loved it. Uh, and so then I went back to the U.S. Went to college at Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. But I knew I always had this this desire to go to Cambodia and experience it. Um, and so from for two years after college, I went. I did a couple of things. I taught English at a university. Uh, but I also worked at an internal displacement camp. Like a few months before I arrived, uh, some of the slums were burned down in the capital of Phnom Penh. And so the government basically shipped all like thousands of people to this, like 20 kilometers outside the capital, to this kind of barren wasteland. It actually right near the, I'm not sure if you've been to Phnom Penh, but it's near the killing fields, Chung Ek. Um, if you've ever been out to the killing fields, you, can, you, you would know that there's just nothing there. there you know, the, the soil is terrible. You can't grow crops. And so these people, there's there's dirty water. I mean, it was just awful conditions. Um, and so my organization um, basically worked and we built dikes and wells and we brought clean food. We took them to the hospital. Um, you know, we did all that. And that was, I wasn't the main person that, but I volunteered a couple of days a week and I would drive out there on all these potholes on my little moto, you know, with like a hundred CC motorcycle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just, you know, I didn't have many skills back then. So we just do what we could to try to help. Um, I probably was more of a burden than a hell, but I, 
Um, <laughs> I loved it. So that's really kind of where my passion for helping um, people in, in desperate situations probably, I would say, took hold for me. Uh, when I left Cambodia, I absolutely knew that doing like human rights work was my passion. That was what God designed for me to do. Um, and so I think my goal from that point was to figure out some way to um, to do that work. And I thought going to law school would be a good way to do it. Although I never ever intended to actually be a practicing attorney. It was always my goal <laughs> to go to law school, get my degree, then move to like Africa and do human rights work in Africa. That was my dream. Um, but when I graduated in 2010, as most people remember, there's an economic recession because of the, uh, the housing market crash. And basically yeah. nonprofits weren't even hiring anymore at that point. Um, law firms weren't even hiring. I think I applied to over 100 law firms uh, in my last year of law school, and I think I got one job offer. Um, so my options were limited. So I didn't go to Africa like I dreamed of. Um, I ended up just doing like insurance defense, and that was awful. Um, you know, car wrecks, <laughs> that was the worst thing ever. So I, I was really close to just leaving, you know, quitting altogether. But, you know, fortunately, I had a few clients that were immigrants and um, a couple of these detention centers. And I honestly, when I went to law school, actually, I didn't realize the opportunity that was here in central Louisiana. But um, I love it. It's um, it's absolutely what, you know, having the ability to look back on the last 10 years of my life as an attorney, um, I have been able to help a lot of people um, in really desperate circumstances. And I have, you know, that's one thing that we don't realize when you go overseas, you don't really have the tools to really help people. Um, you don't know the language, yeah. you don't know the culture. Um, it's really tough helping someone else when you're outside of your own element. Um, but for me living in the US um, and having the legal background knowledge of the asylum rules and process, um, I am able to use um, a very specific skill set to help people who are very, um, who've been persecuted, who've been tortured, who've been you know, imprisoned. Um, you know, I have one of my first clients, I won't forget this, and I kind of did this on a pro bono case. I had a doctor from Syria. Um, he uh, was a part of the opposition. He, um, during the Syrian war back in the, you know, after the Arab Spring, um, you know, most people probably have some background information about it, but he was, you know, part of the opposition, he was a physician. And so he was doing this mobile medical clinic. You couldn't work, you couldn't treat people in the hospital because if you treated the you know, protesters in the hospitals, the government would go in and arrest you. Um, so they basically had these, yeah. they would go to people's homes and treat people like gunshot wounds. And so he, he treated, he finally was caught by the regime, by the Assad regime. And he was, you know, electric shock towards, he still has scars on his body from it. Um, yeah. I think the sad thing, despite all his suffering, you know, he, he volunteered with Doctors Without Borders. Despite all his suffering, he came to the U.S., he sought asylum, and guess what happens? He's detained for three months. He's literally in a U.S. prison for three months before they released him. And yeah. it's just, it goes to show you, like, what, I mean, my, I just, it's hard to believe that someone that's been through all that in life, that we would put them through, you know, three months of basically, and, you know, these detention centers are prisons. They're often used as prisons. So that, you know, people say yeah. it's not, uh, you know, these aren't immigration, sorry, these aren't criminal prisons, but they're the same, the exact same facilities that we use for state prisoners are used for immigrants. Um, so there's no difference between a, a detention center for immigrants and a prison for 
for criminals that are convicted of very serious crimes. And so, so what do we do in America? We take people who have suffered um, and we, we, we keep them detained for as long as they can possibly keep them detained for, um, only further and prolonging the suffering that they've already faced. Um, but the good news for this doctor, he, um, we won his case. He has had an immigration judge in Houston, Texas, and uh, we won his case, and he's free now. He's about to become a, a permanent resident. Um, you know, he wow. went to medical school, like in um, epidemiology in New York, and he actually was a um, he fought. He volunteered to fight COVID. He got COVID himself. Got really, really sick. Um, but, I mean, I guess that, that's such a good example. Like his life. Like if we allow immigrants. The immense, I mean, these he loves America. I mean, he, um, the things that yeah. he's done for our society because the immigration judge had compassion on him and the judge granted him his asylum case. And now, look, he's making an incredible difference for the community that he's living in, with in New York City. Um, you know, so that's a really good example. That's why I do what I do to empower others yeah. to do what they do. Um, and being able to play a small role in his life, you know, means a lot. Um, you know, and I still keep up, we still keep, keep up with each other, you know, like my job is personal to me and it's not an eight to five job. <clears throat> you know, my clients text me in the middle of the night, they call me on Saturday mornings or Sunday evenings, but I enjoy it. Like that's yeah. who I'm, you know, <clears throat> that's what I do and I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, yeah. Well, you definitely bring um, brain and heart to this scenario and I'm just glad there are immigration lawyers like you out there. I'm sure there are others that are, you know, we could interview that are just the same, because I know that there are people out there, you know, in the United States right now, just trying their best to go against what seems to be, you know, shutting out victims of violence and, and um, governments that are not, that are oppressive of people. And like you said, America has always been a place for people to come to and, um, you know, try to restart. And I, I just think that like, you know, from the immigrants I've known and the immigrants I hear people talk about, that work with immigrants here that I know. Um, I just don't really hear the stories that we're seeing in some of the you know, negative re rhetoric from some of the higher levels of our government. So I would love for you to speak about, you know, what are some of the misconceptions that you think um, people might have, especially in the United States, but even other countries around the world that are facing these kind of lockdowns against you know, you know, immigrants. What are some of the misconceptions that you would like to clear up about immigrants? I think there's two big ones. I think I kind of discussed this kind of briefly earlier. I think that the idea that they're a burden um, to our society. Um, you know, I I don't do a lot of this as much as I do to immigrants, but I help some farmer. I have some some clients who are farmers. Um, you know, they try to get these agriculture visas, these H two A visas for the to bring people in. And these farmers, you know, they tell me, man, without these immigrants coming in from Mexico or from other countries in Central America doing this work, the hard labor, like, you know, planting and harvesting and, you know, the kind of labor that you have to bend down and get on your knees like 10 hours a day. Um, it's it's yeah. brutal work. And without these immigrants mm -hmm. doing the work, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to survive because the U.S. citizens absolutely would, they, you can't, you literally can't find enough U.S. citizens that are willing to do that work. Um, so without, yeah. you know, immigrants, legal and illegal, um, you know, they formed, it's such, I think they're the backbone of who we are as a country. Um, you know, the hardworking people that either spend 12 hours a day, you know, in the fields or in, you know, uh, factories or, you know, operating their own, you know, shops like your Venezuelan friends, you know, um, that's critical to our economy 
And I just, yeah. I can't imagine if you were to expel, what is it, 20 million? <laughs> I can't remember the exact number yeah. of illegal immigrants in our nation. Everything would, would it'd fall, it would crash, it wouldn't get better. Um, and yeah. so I think that's the number one thing. But another thing that really, this is like, you know, huge pet peeve of mine is this notion that they're dangerous. Um, I think studies, yeah. there have been a lot of studies on this showing that, you know, immigrants aren't any more, like, there's no increased danger, you know, anytime an illegal immigrant, you know, has a car accident or a DUI and kills someone, you know, it makes national news, like, oh, this person, if we would have heightened our, you know, security, then this never would have happened, this U.S. citizen never would have died, and it's, it's, it's a sad story, but the, the reality is, when you look at all the immigrants combined, legal and illegal, our country is not a more dangerous place because of them um at all so those are probably in my just in my work i've done with um, immigrants over the last 10 years probably you know the, another is they don't pay taxes but a lot of them do a lot even a lot of illegal immigrants will, will pay taxes um you know yeah. and so it, there's so many um but i think the big one i think that i would love for it's just the idea of a burden you know they're not a burden they contribute in so many ways to not only our culture um, but to our economy as well. I think that we are a better nation because of them. I agree. And I think, um, you know, for both you and I having a U.S. passport, but being raised overseas and living overseas for so many years and being so welcomed as an immigrant in other places, being on immigrant visas of various kinds, um, you know, it's not that we never did anything wrong right but that it wouldn't make it wouldn't make the news if we did i mean we had a you know a car accident at one point and it was like you know it just things happen right but nobody made a big deal like kick out all the people with a u.s passport from this country because there was a car accident today (laughs) with you know like we've just never been treated like that Mm -hmm. i'm sure there are places around the world where that might have happened but it's just it's pretty shameful and embarrassing the way the story gets so flipped in the other direction and i i totally agree with you um i think um, as a u.s citizen living abroad i don't think there's any way for me to possibly it's well there's some ways but it's really difficult because it's such a different experience right goes back to what you said yeah we weren't treated as bothersome like at least i wasn't in thailand and cambodia and malaysia i was never treated as a burden to them um you know i've always was accepted wherever i went and you know and uh appreciated and i think that immigrants in the u.s today they don't they're not accepted with the same love and affection that i was as as a child you know and as a young adult living abroad yeah it's it's so shameful and so embarrassing because it really isn't the story we tell about our history or or any of those things it's not it's not the you know, the long history that we've had in the U.S., it is sort of a more recent kind of rhetoric that's happening and a, and a real shift. So I would love for you to speak about, I know that you're you're mostly involved with asylum cases, but the reality is there's not just one way to emigrate to the United States. In most countries, that would be true. Like in Singapore, there were different kinds of visas for people who were maybe from Bangladesh building the MRT line. And there was like, you know, if you have a master's degree and you're going into this kind of role, there's a different kind of you know, um, visa that you come in on their spouse visas. And in the U.S., we have everything from the H-1B visas, which are pretty common here in Sunnyvale, where I live in the Texas mm-hmm. area. There's spouse visas, there's student visas. Of course, there's asylum seekers. There's a variety of ways to come in. 
Um, and I know there's a lot of different policies. There's been some recent crackdown on the H-1B visa that's been in the news, and that's caused a lot of nervousness here in the Silicon Valley. Um, and then I know, like, you know, I have some Venezuelan or some Singaporean friends at Stanford that they were kind of on edge for a little while. And there was some uh, talk about people on student visas in the U.S. having to return to their countries, you know, at the beginning of the fall semester. Right. So I would just love for you to speak about just in general, like our current immigration policies and processes and um, kind of what are your thoughts on that right now? So presently, I, I believe that still um, we still are not letting anyone into the country. Um, Everything is on hold. Um, that goes to asylum seekers and spouses of U.S. citizens. Um, we're still shut down uh, presently. Um, a lot of the consulates, are, they're just starting to open up. So I think we're, we're slowly starting to see a reopening. Um, but I think, it, you know, the, again, it goes to, you know, they're trying to limit, um, I think, a, just a big, with all these visas, I think that, uh, we're restricting, um, you know, again, as you go back to H-1B, we're trying to limit, we're not allowing as many H-1B uh, visa holders as we used to. So in the, in the whole background, the, the defense for that is U.S. jobs, apparently. Apparently, you know, President Trump wants to add more U.S. jobs. So he used COVID, again, the whole tragedy thing to uh, limit the H-1B workers coming from abroad in, in order to open up for more U.S. workers. Uh, I don't really yeah. know if that's valid or not, if, if that'll really allow US, more U.S. workers to work or not. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's probably the best example. Um, fortunately, you know, President Trump tried to cut off the, so that one of the biggest ways to immigrate is family-based immigration. So basically, if you're a child, a spouse, or a parent, or a sibling of a U.S. citizen, or in some cases, a permanent resident, you can come here on a green card. Um, the administration tried really hard to change the law on that, but the good news is that statute, and so the president can't change a statute, um, so that unless you know Congress votes to change the law, that's going to stay in place. Um, but what the president has done, um, he added he, again. It goes through the word restrictive. I think that's a theme that I've seen in the last several years. So even though spouses of U.S. citizens can come to the United States. So there's this new rule, it's called a public charge rule. Basically, you're inadmissible to the United States if you are a, going to be a public charge. That means if, there, if you're likely to go on um, public benefits like Social Security, uh, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, um, food stamps, if, you're, if it's likely that you're really poor, you don't have much of an education, that you're gonna be, go on welfare or something similar, then you are not admissible to the United States. So prior to, and that's a rule that just came out, I believe in November, and it's actually being fought in the courts. The courts keep on going back and forth whether that's legal or not legal. Um, the Supreme Court hasn't made a final decision on it. Um, so we keep going back and forth. Sometimes it's valid, sometimes it's not. It's hard to advise clients because the law keeps changing every month or two on that. So even I'm though, sure. <laughs> even though the law, um, so even though President Trump can't say spouses of U.S. citizens can't come, what he is, what he is trying to do is say what kind of, like if you are gonna be a public burden, then you're inadmissible uh, because you're too poor and you cannot come to the United States. Uh, you don't qualify for a green card based upon your marriage to a US citizen or the fact that your parents, a parent of a US citizen. So that's, again, that's a, probably one of the biggest changes I've seen. Um, I think the whole idea, and you can tell from the whole, 
you know, you see the big picture when you see it's been what three and a half years of this current administration, and everything yeah. that they do is an attempt to limit. Um, ultimately, they're just trying to limit. You know, in in both leave. The, this is what people don't realize is that he's limiting not just illegal immigrants, but he's also limiting legal immigrant legal immigration. Right. So this has no idea about upholding the rule of law, protecting our borders, nothing to do with that. Um, you know, yeah. I think it's more of a nationalistic position. Uh, you know, we don't yeah. want uh, foreigners, people who aren't Caucasian into our country. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's such a theme with this current administration is limiting any kind of immigration, whether that's legal or illegal in any way possible, whether that's using COVID as an excuse whether that's using, you know, public charges and public benefits as an excuse, uh, danger to the community. I mean, there's so many reasons why they say that what they re why they do what they do. But at the end of the day, the only justification is simply to limit anyone from coming into the United States. Yeah, you know, I know there's a lot of conversation around um, legal versus illegal immigration. And, um, you know, I'll hear some people say, you know, well, I know so-and-so and they waited in a camp in Africa for 10 years in a refugee camp and they're finally, their lottery number was called and they were able to seek asylum. And, and so there can be some hard feelings toward those who came here illegally when they had to, you know, go through that process themselves. Um, and, you know, there's also the thing that not only has legal immigration been so challenging in so many of these types of ways to come, um, but if we're increasing how hard it is, that it's probably increasing the illegal immigration because it's just people are that desperate to get here for the various reasons that they come. So, yeah, what are your some, some of your thoughts on those kind of conversations? Um, yeah, I do think that, I mean, at the end of the day, people, the whole people are coming to the United States to make a better life for themselves and for their family. And so even though we might make it more difficult for them to get here. But that's, you know, as we saw, even with the, all the migrant caravans, you know, during yeah. President Trump, that's not going to stop them from a, trying to, to come here um, to make a better life for themselves. That's, and I do agree that um, you are, I mean, what you're doing when you, when you tell a spouse of a U.S. citizen that they can't come into the country, then they're probably going to figure out some way to make it, whether it's through the legal process or not. Um, yeah. And so I don't, you know, yeah, I think it's tough because I also see as an attorney, you know, I see people desperate trying to come to the United States and I, it's tough because people like caravans from Guatemala. I mean, I know what's going to happen. You know, 99.5% of them are going to be turned around and sent back home. Um, so yeah. they're going through thousands of miles, you know, who know how much money they have to pay for the trip. Um, yeah. But they're not going to, they're not going to make it. Um, they're not going to win their cases because most Central Americans don't win asylum cases. That's just the reality of it. Um, unless yeah. you're from unless you're from Venezuela or Nicaragua or, or Cuba, you know those are the countries that we're seeing winning. But none of the other countries, you know, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Mexico, those countries they don't win. Um, yeah. And so I I, I grieve that right because um, I see that these people are desperate. Because yeah. you know they truly are trying to run from something, or they're they're so poor that they can't support their families. Um, but I see that as an attorney, I see the other side that I just know I know what's going to happen when the when the case is over. The judge is going to yeah. deny it, and he's going to deport them. 
Um, and it, it's a tough one. So I, uh, yeah, it's kind of, I feel compassion, but you know, I wish I could go live in Guatemala and maybe counsel some of those people before they make that decision, just so they make a more informed decision about, you know, yeah. their life before they, they walk journey six, 7,000 miles to get here. Um, yeah, it's just heartbreaking because clearly what's going on in some of these places in El Salvador and Guatemala and, and Southern Mexico and different places, like, you know, my parents live on the border, so I hear stories through them. And a lot of the people are just small indigenous people. Some speak Spanish, some don't. Some speak, you know, just whatever, you know, their native language is. You know, I don't hear stories of these like murderers, thieves coming across like the, what we're being told. Um, that it's children it's like people who are really shy and traumatized and exhausted um and desperate and it is really sad like you said that they get turned away that we don't offer them a chance for this american dream that we've all talked about for so long that doesn't seem attainable for for those who are really needing it and suffering and when you talk about children that was such a good point i got this call yesterday from this person who's detained he's in removal he came to the U.S. and he was, um, so when he, when he talked to him on the phone, he sounded like this Southerner. He has a really thick Southern accent. It sounds like he lives in a trailer somewhere in some rural area. You know, he has that, <laughs> that voice. But he came when he was three years old from Mexico. Wow. And he, so he's Mexican, but he doesn't, you know, I don't even know if he speaks Spanish, to be honest with you. Um, you know, he's fluent English. He's American for all intents and purposes. He yeah. feels American, but yet because he was brought here when he was a, a baby, a three-year-old, you know, now he's being sent home. And so I think that one of the travesties of the last, even before President Trump, this was an issue. Um, yeah. You know, we have millions of, of DACA, uh, millions of people who came here as kids. Yeah. And we're not giving them a, a way who are, very, you know, went to public schools in the U.S. They were on our high school football teams, soccer teams, whatever, baseball. Yeah. They, you know, are on, you know, honor society. And yet, you know, there's no pathway for them to become U.S. citizens. And I think out of all the things that makes me really sad, the fact that we don't have, haven't, Congress hasn't come together and just made it a way for them to, to come here. That's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a tragedy. It is. I know we have so many of those DACA cases here in California, and I have some friends that work with some DACA cases trying to help people out. And I just, I hear those kind of stories all the time. It breaks my heart because you know, my parents, your parents, they, they took us overseas and we were never asked, you know, that was something that they did. Fortunately, they were able to do that legally in the places they went. But if, if it had been a different situation for me and my parents had been somewhere illegally and raised me that way. And I, and I was, you know, doing what we see a lot of immigrants here in the Bay area that work really hard there. It's exactly what you're saying. They know they have to work twice and three times as hard as everyone else to make it. And I think that's pretty typical of the stories of immigrants that I know about because they came here because they weren't just sitting around lazy, accepting life as it was. They wanted to be proactive with their family, take a great risk um, and and raise their family somewhere else and going a place where you're not known. You have no connections. You probably don't know the language. You don't have resources. You don't have anybody who can like put in a good word for you for a job anywhere. Like you're just starting cold Turkey with your family and it takes a certain to do that. And they raise their kids typically to be very proactive and hardworking and try to get the best grades and try to do their best in sports or whatever they're involved in. I think that's a pretty typical story and it's heartbreaking when those kids get sent home to a place they've never known. Absolutely. And even worse when that, when those kids don't know their own native language, 
from their parents' country yeah. and they don't know, they yeah. can't assimilate because they don't, they're, that culture is completely foreign to them. Um, you know, it's, that's even harder. Um, it is harder. So I'd love for you to talk about for, you know, most of us listening aren't immigration lawyers, um, but what are some practical ways that you think we can help immigrants in the U.S. and even around the world from your perspective? I think two ways. Um, most immigrants, like what one that I've even do is a non-attorney. I think that this is the, the most practical thing that we could probably do is, you know, there's still a lot of, a lot of these immigrants come here and they don't know much about the culture. They don't have the skill sets to, um, they want, most of them want to assimilate. They want to learn English. They want to learn how we do things so they can live in society. Um, so I think volunteering is something as simple as volunteering at your church or whatever local organizations you're close to, like teaching English or, you know, I, I teach English. So I've been teaching English since I was like 17 years old. I've, I still do that. Um, you know, I'm 41 now. So I've been doing it for, I don't even know, 24 years, but I still love to do it. Um, and that's something that's still something I can also provide to people who aren't my clients. And so, you know, finding a, a nonprofit organization or um, a church and just, you know, volunteering and using your skills and teaching them skills that they don't have that we do have, like, like something as simple as speak, speaking English. Um, I think that on a bigger level, um, advocating, I think, is a big issue. Uh, DACA is probably number one. If I'd ask for people to put number one, something on their priority list, I think DACA would be it. Um, if there's anything that we need to, to make a priority in the next four to five years, it needs to be DACA, um, finding a way for those millions of people on DACA. And I think that's advocating, that's whether that's attending rallies, that's you know, um, getting the word out about how DACA kids do contribute to our country, um, and just allowing people, giving them more information to make, you know, so that Congress can act on that. Um, but again, I think when it, most practical when it comes to community-wide, just find a local organization that invests in immigrants and, and ask what you can do to help them. Um, there's so many across the country. And if you don't have one, if you live in a rural area like I do, then start one. I mean, you know, like I, I mean, our church that I go to, we, we have English classes for our adults uh, from like three to five. But I told my pastor, listen, you're missing out a large group because a lot of these men that work and women, they don't finish work until the sun sets. And so maybe we need to start classes from seven to nine instead of three to five. Um, so go out and be proactive and start something. Um, you know, there's, again, a lot of immigrants that are here don't have the tools, the skill sets to function, to completely assimilate. And most of them do want those tools. And so they are looking for help um, to figure out how to live life in the U.S. And there's so much we can do when it comes to that. Those are all such good ideas and, and seem very um, doable for most of us. I, I think it's important just for us to, you know, find the, the big and small ways that we can all help out for those of us who aren't dealing with, you know, immigration and visa issues wherever we live. Um, but it, it does it does lead us to the conversation, and this may be a, a bit of a more challenging question, but, you know, there's a lot of conversation in the U.S. right now, um, at least in the area of racism, where we talk about, you know, the individual responsibility, like an individual who might, for example, be racist versus a system of racism. And so, like, I know that individuals with, you know, as immigration issues in America have their own individual situation 
But then there's also some systemic things that make it really difficult and as for a whole group of people to ever make it. Um, and this whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of concept that we have, um, that it is hard when the system is really stacked against you as an immigrant. So what mm-hmm. are some of the systemic ways we could be involved, um, especially for those of us who have privilege to do so, to help change some of the system? What would you say were some steps? Oh, we could take? That's way above my pay grade. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a great question. You probably have some better ideas than I would about that. Um, you give me your thoughts and I'll, I'll give you my responses. <laughs> so what's one idea that you have on that, Lori, that you think well, about systemic change? I mean, I think that, and this is a controversial thing too, but I think voting is a really big one. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some people don't take into consideration immigration when they're voting. Some people right. have one, one issue in mind and only one issue um, about how lives and how lives matter. Um, but, you know, even calling senators and pushing our, you know, mayors. I mean, we live in like a sanctuary city, but not everywhere is like that. Um, you know, I, my friend Alan Cross, I interviewed him recently, and he talked about, you know, he knew the, the sheriff in uh, Montgomery, and when he saw people being racially profiled and, and pulled over, he talked to the sheriff, and the sheriff talked to the police about not doing that. I mean, right. those kinds of things, and I don't that's know Louisiana. Example. Yeah, so, I don't know what it's like in Louisiana, but. That's a big thing. So I, I've noticed um, a lot of my detained clients. So the, this is kind of immigration side of it. Um, so police officers are not really supposed to act as ICE officers. So that basically that means like if you can pull someone over for a ticket, but a police officer isn't really supposed to inquire by their immigration status. And so I've, sadly I've had, I had one, one client, he was literally walking on the side of a highway and a police officer drove up to him and arrested him for, I don't even know what, he didn't even have a valid reason to arrest him other than the fact that he wasn't legal. Um, and the judge actually was real. This is one of those pretty good judges that you get, pretty good immigration judges. You know, she gave him the lowest, yeah. the lowest bond possible because she knew what the police officer did was as illegal as you get. You know, and she said, "Don't." She made a joke that don't go walking with highways anymore or something. You know, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen immigrants, uh, you know, pulled over by police for a broken taillight and then arrested. And so I think that yeah. when it comes to sy- systemic racism. Um, I do see a lot of examples of local, you know, uh, police officers all across. And I've seen it in Chicago, like the, the taillight incident was, that was in Illinois. So it's not just Louisiana that you see, or that, you see that, it's yeah. all over the country. And so I think that yeah. there's such an animosity towards immigrants that police, um, a lot of times you will see the police make an illegal arrest. The problem though is that as illegal as it was, that's not... 99% of the immigration judges aren't going to care about how they got detained by ICE. The only thing they're going to care about is whether they're illegally in the country, legally in the country or illegally in the country. So you can't even raise, yeah. you can't even bring that issue up in immigration court. Um, so I have seen a lot of, you know, police are allowed, for example, if someone actually commits a real crime like um, arson or burglary, then it's sure at that point the police can arrest them. They can run a background check and then send, report them to ICE and transfer them to ICE custody. Um, that's perfectly legal. But the, the situations where I've seen that aren't legal is where they arrest someone for not committing an arrestable offense, like broken taillight or a speeding ticket or, you know, an expired, you know, plate. I see over and over again, illegal immigrants are arrested, actually put in handcuffs when the actions of the police officers in doing that are 100, 100% 
you know, illegal. They have no, they have no jurisdiction to, to make arrests like that. Um, and the only reason is because they racially profiled them. They asked for their, you know, I see, I see U.S. citizens who are racially profiled. You know, they look like an immigrant. They look illegal. You know, and yeah. you know, they're, they're, the police ask for, you know, identification. Um, I see that over and over again. Um, so I think that the, when it comes to immigrants, I think the systemic part is probably a big part of it is like as Alan was telling you, is the racial profiling. And a lot of that is done by the local police forces. Um, and I think too, they just, for the people who aren't police, just a general dis, like in my town, like I live in, you know, it's 100% Republican. You know, I can't, I don't know the percent of Democratic voters here. It's not very many. Um, and so there's a significant distrust of immigrants in this town. Um, they're very, I think that there's no desire to understand their stories. Um, you know, there's no desire to help allow them to assimilate into our own culture. Um, and so I think even though immigrants do want what you see as a result, when we block, when we forcibly make the decision, whether it's, you know, consciously or, you know, sub, subconsciously, we make the decision not to allow them into our lives because we have, you know, preconceived ideas about who they are as people. Um, that also plays into the systemic problem that immigrants face, um, you know, and that often is getting jobs, is getting work, you know, it's being employed. Uh, it's really tough to um, to make a good life for yourself when you live in, you know, rural America, red America. Um, when you don't live in a big city, that's even more difficult. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I have a good friend here um, from Nigeria, and she's a wonderful Christian woman, a single mom who fled from a really difficult situation. And um, and it's not even in the Bay Area sometimes like she experiences some pretty racist things. And um, but she's worked so hard to get here and she's smart and she's working on her job skills. And, and even here, even, um, you know, this, it can be stacked against someone like that. It can be really difficult. Her, her case is still pending. Mm-hmm. Um, but I look think probably a lot of people look at her and just think, you know, her family's been here for generations, but they haven't. It's, she's the first, you know, and just a lot of stereotypes that we can have about people aren't helpful. Um, and I just think it's a good reminder. We all have work to do personally and systemically and that there are steps, like you mentioned, that we can take in small and big ways to help make our society more open and welcoming, not just for them, but for us, because they add to our lives too. And we have, we have so much to learn. I feel like I've learned a ton from the immigrant immigrants I've met that are just so hardworking and courageous and they're inspiring to me and they make me want to be more hardworking and courageous too, because that kind of thing is contagious. And I think they have a lot, a lot to teach. I would say um, when it comes to fighting that everyone has an amazing story to tell. And we as humans, in order to fight against our own prejudices, we should be open to hearing their story. Um, I think mm-hmm. so few Americans, I mean, even, I think when I was 18, you know, I think the hardest part about coming to America, I had all these experiences abroad and none of the people I went to college with, very few of them cared about what my story was. They didn't ask me questions, probing questions. They didn't try to find out more about what makes me who I am. Um, I had a story to yes. tell, but not, no one wanted to hear it. Um, and so I think so many yeah. immigrants have a story to tell. Um, whether it's someone, my doc, yeah. the doctor from Syria, or whether it's someone from Venezuela who, you know, is a, fleeing the regime there. Um, we, all these immigrants have such an incredible story to tell. 
And we, so for yeah. anyone listening to this, listen to their stories and just spend time being a listener, understanding where they come from. And that'll give us more compassion for, you know, where they're at now. That's so good. Would you uh, leave us with maybe a story that's one of the ones that impacted you the most? So I think the, the biggest one. Um, from any of your clients? Probably the one from Syria. I think just bring it current today. So that was the, the Syrian client was in a while ago. Um, so I have a, so obviously my faith is really important to me. Um, you know, we often talk about, you know, the persecuted church. Um, we look, we see how life is difficult for so many Christians abroad. Uh, I think that's something, again, this, this church in America doesn't truly express. We don't realize the freedoms we have in this country to, you know, to worship. Um, and so I have a current client. He's still detained. He has cases of nowhere. But he's a Christian. He's a Pentecostal, and he lives in Eritrea. Uh, most people, Eritrea is a tiny, tiny sliver of a country near Somalia in northeastern portion of Africa. Um, and that country is, you know, it's very communist. Um, it's extreme in its ideology. It only allows like state-sponsored you know, religion, um, and it's against the law to be, you know, Pentecostal. So basically, my um, my client, who's been detained for a year, despite the fact that he suffered so much suffering abroad, so he was a he he was shared Jesus with with his students. He was a teacher, and uh, he got arrested for he was put in put in prison for two months. Um, he was released. He fled the country, went to Sudan, lived in Sudan uh, for several years. Uh, before finally coming to the U.S. Um, and so I think that as a believer, as someone who follows Christ, you know, the persecuted church is, they're scattered through all of our, all of our detention centers in America. They're not released. Um, and we're, especially when we call ourselves a Christian nation, um, to see other believers treated that way. And it, I mean, it goes for any religion. Yeah. It, you know, people are going to have the similar story. Um, so that's currently probably a story that kind of moves me. Um, and so I'm, I, you know, I was in court one day and he approached me and says, you know, I need your help. Can you listen to me? So I, I literally, I sat down with him for 30 minutes and just listened to his story. And, um, so for me, one of the big things I try to do, I definitely have to make a living for my work. So a lot of people pay me, but I try really hard to be always open to providing pro bono services for those who can't afford me because I don't ever want to turn someone away because of money. Um, and so that, like yeah. this person, I'm not, he's not paying me anything. Um, and so that's just one way I can help. Um, but his final hearing is in about two weeks. So if you ever have another podcast, I could give you an update. Um, you know, he has a great yeah. case, but these judges, <laughs> immigration judges, they're so, they're so bad that um, it's really hard to win. So we'll see. Keep my fingers oh, crossed. Man. Yeah, well, hopefully all of us listening can say a prayer for him and God will work in his favor and, and give him what he really needs to, to make it here. That would be wonderful right. if that happened. But I do thank you for sharing that story because I just I think you're so right. Um, I think each individual has a story. When I came to college, I felt all the same ways you did when I was leaving Venezuela and coming here. I didn't feel like people understood so much mm -hmm. of my story. And then when I've met immigrants and heard their stories, I just thought even more so, I mean, they've been through such hard things. If, you know, persecution, if you're fleeing in, um, a situation where your faith is not allowed to be practiced in the way that you or you feel convicted about, or people who've come across oceans and dangerous situations, people who've survived war, people who've survived unspeakable things, there, 
you know, if there's anything that we learned living in Indonesia after the tsunami and the trauma that people experience, it's that just telling your story is, is therapeutic because as human beings, we just need someone to listen. Mm -hmm. But I learned so much, even in those stories of survival and the tsunami and just the way God saved people, just literally saved people. And I think that immigrants are full of stories of miracles of God saving their lives and bringing them here. And they're just such a gift to us. Even to hear their story is such a sacred space. So um, thank you for encouraging us to do that. Cause I think it's one just really small, but big thing that each of us could do is reach out and just hear someone's story. And um, we can all benefit Absolutely. from that. So. Well, thank you for your time today. I know you're really busy, so I really appreciate it. And I know that you're doing really great work. So just, um, God bless you and all the cases that you have currently and the ones that you will get in the future. Thank you for um, just living out your faith in a very practical way of living out biblical justice, social justice, right where you are and where God's put you. I just really Absolutely. Let me just say one last thing before we go off. Um, one of the ways sure. I'm able to help people, um, I, always, I always tell people, I'll talk to anyone for free. Tell me your story. Call me. Let me know. And now as an attorney, I'll, so if anyone's listening to this, you know an immigrant who needs help, they just can't afford it. Um, if they want someone to give them a blueprint for how to move, proceed and have legal status, you know, always, you know, contact Lori. And I will be more, I talk to people all the time on the phone across the country. I know I work with them and I try to like help them navigate through their situation to figure out what's the best way for them to live here permanently. So anyone that, that's listening that knows anyone that needs help, I absolutely reach out and I'll do everything I can to, to help you guys. Um, and that's a part of who I am as a person and uh, no obligation. You don't have to pay me for anything other than just giving you time for however long we need to figure things out. So um, anyways. Aw, that's really kind of you. You're definitely a person. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Laura. I enjoyed this. I enjoy uh, this. Is, yes, so, I did too. Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. Awesome. Okay, we'll talk to you again right, soon, hopefully. Bye, Chris. Well, this was certainly just so enlightening to hear just firsthand stories from an immigration lawyer here in the United States um, who has been in the courtroom with countless immigrants, hearing their stories, just pouring his heart and soul into just uh, defending them and trying to, to help them. And I just, you know, that moment where he said it's like 99.5% of those coming in from Guatemala and Central America and all these areas are in these caravans are going to be turned back. And, you know, thinking of the spouses who are trying to make it here to be with their spouses um, and knowing how hard it is, how difficult it is, how desperate people are. And I, I know that you, along with me, just heard Chris's heart um, he has certainly been very diligent to study and, um, and continually study to prepare for each of his clients and defend them in court. And yet, um, at the same time, he, he puts a lot of heart and soul into what he does and just that super generous offer that he, he put out there at the end that if we know anyone who needs legal representation, that he's, he's willing to help people. And wow, it's just, um, so many immigration lawyers out there I know are, are, are like Chris, where they just, they go into this um, to help people and, and do it with such uh, hard, hard work. And even when some of the laws are just very, very difficult to navigate, especially 
now in, in some ways more so than they ever have been in, in particular ways. And so, yeah, I just hope that the things that he taught us about today, that those will spur up, spur on conversations that you'll have with people in your lives, with your families, with your spouses, with those in your community, with immigrants that you know, with maybe you know some immigration lawyers, and this has been a real eye-opener of knowing how to pray for them. Um, and, and they really are just on the front lines helping people. And, and it really is just, it's so good to know what goes into that, what Chris is dealing with on a daily basis and how to advocate for people. But it's also, maybe you're listening to this and this has been a moment where you just felt really compelled that this is an area you want to study to be an immigration lawyer yourself. And this has um, just been that moment where you realize I I want to do what Chris does. I want to help people in the way that he does. I don't really know what information you're taking away from this today, but I know that all of us can take away something. We have something to learn. So I just encourage you to think through what that one next step is for you, what one piece of information that um, is a mindset shift for you today or opened your eyes in in some way, maybe opened your heart in a a different way. Um, And I just think that as we listen to this story, Chris is really it put it out there to help us see immigrants in a different light. You know, as a child, he had this opportunity to see people coming into Thailand from Cambodia that were desperate and that were um, so desperate that they'd be willing to come into a situation in Thailand that was also not ideal. But um, as we've heard time and again throughout this series, people leave one country for another as an immigrant or as a refugee mostly because life isn't sustainable for whatever reason where they are and there's a variety of reasons so it's so important to just hear the stories and I know as a lawyer he he hears the stories in such a way as to take notes and to pay attention to every single detail because he has to stand before a judge and and a jury and defend people and so he has to have good listening skills so I just encourage you to have the kind of listening skills with immigrants around you that that Chris Kinison undoubtedly does um, that we, we just hear the, the words and then we, we listen for the feelings behind it. Um, it's, it's just certainly true that uh, our creator God made our bodies to have emotions. And when we have experiences as immigrants, there's no way there aren't a lot of feelings and emotions tied into that. And to just shut those down and move on when you get to the new nation it's not helpful for anyone. Those, those feelings, especially the traumatic ones, they catch up with us. So maybe just listening today, that's the one step you can take away is just to find an immigrant near you. And whether their English is broken or fluent, um, just be a listener and listen for the feelings. And if you don't even understand a lot of the words they're saying, um, you can listen for the feelings and just be that friend, that listening ear that so many of our immigrant friends around us need to hear. So I just hope that this has been as enlightening for you today as it was for me. Thank you so much to Chris Kennison for giving us his time today and for all that he does every day on behalf of immigrants here in the United States and and just his years of experience around the world working with IDPs and other refugees where he's lived. Um, I just pray and hope that today you take away something really special and it, it, um, it allows you to do something new and different in your life to bring change and make a difference in the lives of someone near you who, who really needs that friend. Tune in next week because we are going to get a 
to hear from my friend here in the Bay Area, Gracia Berrios, and she herself is an immigrant. She came here as a baby from Peru in South America, and she currently works here in the Bay Area with a lot of our DACA cases. So she has a lot of firsthand information as well on a lot of the immigrant immigrant situations here in California. She's just a a really dedicated and special person here in uh, in the Bay Area with the work that she does. So tune in for that. And I hope you guys have a great week. Bye.